Media Law Podcast Newscast. I'm Colette Allen and I'm with Tom and Paul to bring you the latest Media Law headlines. We have a number of cases to discuss today. Libel updates from Andrew Neil and Roman Abramovich, phone hacking settlements, Supreme Court privacy judgments, Assange's extradition and the Rohingya Facebook controversy. But I want to start with the government's latest attempt to relaunch the campaign to overhaul the Human Rights Act. In the words of a Ministry of Justice source that spoke to The Guardian this week, this is an attempt to combat, and I quote, wokery and political correctness. The proposed new bill will introduce a permission stage to deter spurious human rights claims and change the balance between freedom of expression and privacy. The MOJ source cited by The Guardian uses the male's loss in the Court of Appeal against the Duchess of Sussex for the illegal publication of the letter written to her father as evidence of common law privacy laws that have come in by the back door and the freedom of expression needed to be given extra weight. I wanted to get um, your comments on this because obviously this is highly relevant to the kinds of issues that we've discussed a lot on Newscast before. Yes, okay, so this is the return of uh, an idea that took root in the Conservative Party in the early 2010s, which was that the Human Rights Act was bad and needed to be gotten rid of, and it has arisen again every few years since. And then when Brexit came along, it took a back seat. Uh, uh, And now that Dominic Raab has found himself demoted to the position of Justice Secretary, it seems he's going to take that out on the rest of us. Um, by bringing this plan into fruition. Um, but let's let's not pretend that this is the government has just realized that there's an acute problem with the human rights act that needs to be resolved. This is a long-standing ideological campaign to water down the protections uh, that the human rights act affords. Um, and it is dressed up in the guise of, Uh, In some instances, free speech, but mainly in quite nationalistic language. Uh, That's quite plain to see in the consultation document that has been published. And it is a staggeringly incoherent document. That is the first thing to say. Um, You you rightly point out, Colette, that that there is uh, mention in it Uh, of uh, the Duchess of Sussex case and that much has been made of the importance of redressing the balance between free speech and privacy. In other words, to water down the right to privacy entirely uh, and let the press write whatever they want, because that, you know, would be the only way in which you could resolve the Duchess of Sussex case in favour of the newspapers. But at the same time, in that consultation document, at paragraph 135, which you can find on page 39 of the PDF, if you download it from the government website. Um, The document talks about the case of DPP and Ziegler. This was the case involving environmental protesters who chained themselves to the road for the grand total of 90 minutes outside the Excel Centre in London, causing moderate disruption to those on the highway. Um, Of this, the consultation document says that... uh, The case highlights the problems the Human Rights Act creates when assessing proportionality, because in this case, it enabled a group of protesters to disrupt the rights and freedoms of the majority. I mean, leaving aside the lunacy of suggesting the majority of people in the UK were on that particular road outside the Excel Centre during that particular 90-minute period of protest, which is self-evidently absurd, um, the argument being presented here is 
there's too much free speech. These pesky protesters and their political speech about all oh, the environment, which you know is perhaps the most pressing issue of the day because it actually goes to the continued existence of the human race on this planet. Um, in that instance, they're saying, oh, well, the proportionality test means that free speech is winning too much. But in the Duchess of Sussex case, they're saying, well, the proportionality test is, is wrong in that um, free speech loses. Uh, there is no coherent way to make those two points. Either there is too much free speech or there is too little free speech, but you can't have a single proportionality test that entirely reverses those two decisions. Um, so this is obviously incoherent, and that incoherence, I think, is all the evidence we need that this is not an evidence-driven proposal. It is an ideologically driven proposal. Yep, it is. And it also um, demonstrates, I think, the tremendous constitutional flaw in our so-called democracy that uh, an ideological driven government and an ideologically driven press can work hand in hand in order to get what they both want with uh, the cost to be borne by the great British public. Um, the system of uh, privacy protection that we have in this country, as listeners know, is not perfect. Tom and I are the first to say that. Well, I'm normally first. He normally disagrees, comes in second. But um, the reality is that freedom of expression, where it amounts to public interest expression, is given the most and best protection it could possibly be given in any country. Uh, freedom of uh, the press in this country is probably the, the highest of any democratic nation in the entire world. The problem is that uh, those on Fleet Street continue to think that privacy invading expression is their right. They think it's for them, not only to tell us the private lives of celebrities, but more importantly, to, to ruin the lives of anyone that piques their interests. So anyone who has lost a loved one suddenly can find themselves in a newspaper. They can find their grief splashed on the, all over the newspaper pages just to amuse someone for a moment. Their lives are left devastated, but you might get to laugh at them. We also, we also see that this uh, government wants to get rid of the um, Human Rights Act to pursue its own uh, right-wing agenda, and it would suit uh, the press down to the ground if they could just get rid of privacy, because they, they would prefer to generate money by selling stories that titillate and entertain. The reality is, though, that... Um, Privacy is not necessarily going to go away if the Human Rights Act goes away. The misuse of private information tort is now so well established as a successor to the breach of confidence claim that pre-existed that even with the demise of the Human Rights Act, newspapers could still find themselves in the same position. So 
they would need, uh, so newspapers and the government, I mean, the government and newspapers, it's very difficult now to see the line between the two. But to get rid of the misuse of private information tort, they would have to pass a piece of legislation that would specifically do away with that uh, too. Another aspect of this proposal is uh, to do with the government's agenda around immigration and particularly the deportation of foreign nationals, um, specifically the deportation of foreign nationals who've been convicted of criminal offences. Most of the consultation documents fire uh, that's aimed at Article 8 uh, is uh, aimed at it in this context. The government in the consultation document gives... Uh, a number of examples of cases where um, the Human Rights Convention, um, both Article 6, which is the right to uh, fair trial, and Article 8, right to private family life, have been prayed in aid by uh, convicted criminals uh, in claims against government authorities. There are actually remarkably few of these cases cited. They're just cited and given a detailed explanation. But you're talking about a number of single instances uh, that are being used ostensibly to justify the curtailing of the protections in these two articles for everybody. Um, And a a, a substantial number of the cases that are mentioned are ones that didn't even succeed against the government. So we have a range of Article 6 cases, for example, um, that the consultation document uh, talks about, um, which were not actually successful when they were brought. Um, These are all around about page 36 in the document. And what the government says is, oh, the claim was struck out or the claim didn't succeed at trial, but the government's costs were X and they give an amount in one. They said the government's legal costs in defending the supposedly spurious human rights claim from a prisoner were over four and a half thousand pounds. And in others, they were they were even into the tens of thousands of pounds. Um, This is the government that spent nine hundred thousand pounds repainting a plane. 2.6 million redecorating a room in Downing Street that has only been used to screen uh, a James Bond film and for uh, Allegra Stratton and her cohorts to record an ill-advised Christmas video. Um, This is not not coherent thinking from government if they're they're concerned about wasting costs. Um, Spending £4,500 defending a human rights claim is a perfectly reasonable use of public funds, um, assuming that it is reasonable to defend the claim. Maybe we need to be clearer on that, that the Human Rights Act doesn't exist to to prevent uh, the authorities from doing their job. The Human Rights Act doesn't exist to allow actual criminals to be able to perpetrate horrendous crimes and get away with it. It doesn't do that. It doesn't exist to do that, and it doesn't do that. What the Human Rights Act recognises 
is that even the police, even the authorities in a wider sense, make mistakes. And when they make mistakes, injustices occur. The Human Rights Act exists to help uh, protect individuals from those mistakes. Now, the Human Rights Act might slow down uh, authorities inadvertently, but the press cause injustice inadvertently. How many times do we read about the police saying that because a newspaper published information about a suspect or about a crime too soon, a perpetrator was able to escape justice? We read about it probably more often than we should. Not necessarily through the mainstream press, but eventually this kind of information gets out. No one is saying that newspapers shouldn't be able to report on what the police do just in case they inadvertently allow a perpetrator to evade justice. So what are we trying to achieve by getting rid of the Human Rights Act? How does the Human Rights Act affect ordinary individuals on a day-to-day basis? It doesn't. That is the sadness of all of this. It doesn't. Brexit, on the other hand, affects individuals on a day-to-day basis. But we're not allowed to talk about Brexit. Yes, um, I'm going to move on just because there's a lot of other things that we want to talk about today but I think a nice point that you made is that the idea that um, privacy is here to stay regardless of the Human Rights Act and so on that I want to move on to the some phone hacking settlements which took place on the 8th and 9th of December this year 2021 um, which was a series of statements in open courts that were made on behalf of 15 phone hacking claims against the Sun and its parent news group newspapers. The statement that garnered the most attention was that of the actress Sienna Miller, although the actor Sean Bean and footballer Paul Gascoigne were also on the list. Miller's statement emphasised the devastating effect that the intrusions had on her, specifically with regard to the leak that she was pregnant, which she said brutally took away her choice. Despite the Sun's repeated statements that it had not admitted liability for hacking, Miss Miller's statement says that the substantial damages that NGN agreed to pay is tantamount to an admission of liability. An important line that sticks out of the last paragraph of Miss Miller's statement is that the Sun has avoided public trial with all of these settlements. Now, I'm sure that all of the settlements would have been a cost decision because um, when litigants are offered fair financial settlements ahead of trial, usually if they don't accept it, they have to bear the costs of both sides if if they decide to go on with trial, the trial itself. So this means that if Miss Miller had won, she would have still had to pay the legal bill for both sides, which could have been hundreds of thousands, if not more. So how, I just want to get your thoughts on how important it was for the Sun that these claims didn't go to trial. Well, I think it was a very clever strategy on the part of the Sun to uh, put the claimants in this position where, as you say, because of the of the civil litigation rules, uh, they would have been taking a huge risk to pursue to trial. Because they've settled out of trial, it cannot be said that the Sun newspaper, which is also owned by the same company as the News of the World, cannot be said that the Sun engaged in phone hacking. Uh, In fact, the nature of the statement is such that we cannot even say they engaged in phone hacking without being uh, sued or exposing ourselves uh, to the risk of being 
uh, soon. So that was a very clever strategy, I think, on the part of the sun. And uh, it's not just in this case, of course, the sun has actively been settling these kind of claims uh, against it. Now, there are lots of reasons why a company will settle a claim in circumstances where it is not uh, liable or is not is, is not uh, liable for uh, a legal uh, wrong. Often it's because the cost of going to trial simply outweighs any value in getting a positive judgment from a court that would uh, exonerate them of any civil uh, wrong. And so it's just easier for uh, the company to settle. And these are, of course, in the industry, these are known as nuisance claims. But nuisance claims generally attract a minimal amount of uh, damages. They don't attract substantial damages. So the fact that the son paid a substantial amount of money uh, is strange. The fact that the son also tried to prevent these open statements from taking place is also strange. Why would the son not want Miss Miller to, uh, or, or uh, Mr. Gascoigne, or uh, Mr. Harris from describing their circumstances? Why would they not want them to to do that? It is concern. Of course, the narrative on Fleet Street from day one, before Leverton started, was that the phone hacking scandal at the news of the world uh, were the actions of one rogue reporter this wasn't a prevalent problem it was just one individual mr clive goodman um aided and abetted by glenn mulcair uh, who had engaged in this illegal activity it wasn't a practice that everyone engaged with this doesn't really tie up with reality though because we know for a fact that a number of individuals not celebrities, not entirely celebrities by any stretch of the imagination, very personal information about them was made known in circumstances where they just couldn't account for how this information came into the uh, journalist's hands. The effect of this, of course, on those individuals has been profound because they have understandably distrusted all of their close contacts, their friends, their family, because they've suspected that those individuals were the ones that were feeding information to the journalists. Here in Miss Miller's case, we've got exactly that set of circumstances, very personal information about her being given to a senior journalist at The Sun, who is still a senior journalist at The Sun, who is, by coincidence, the same journalist that wrote the story about Ben Stokes, Back in 2005, he was able to get this information about her that was incredibly private. But because we've been deprived of a trial, we don't know for certain what happened. We can only speculate. There's a link between what we were saying in respect to the government's consultation on the future of the Human Rights Act and this case. And the link is this. Um, there exists already within the law a mechanism by which defendants can tactically force claimants into accepting settlements where there is no admission of wrongdoing. Um, and thus we end up in the situation that, that, that we're in in this case where claimants 
uh, have not taken the case to trial, we can't say that phone hacking took place in these cases. And the claimants haven't had a day in court that they may or may not have wanted to have, but the opportunity is not there because that very costs penalty looms large in the background if they don't take the settlement that is offered. A bit like placing a strong bet in poker. The risk is too great, so the claimants don't take it. And yet we are being told by the government that protections for free speech interests of the newspapers are not strong enough. Again, this is not coherent. Obviously, there are strong free speech protections. This is one, unless you take the view that activities of the sort that were obviously going on at these newspapers in, in recent years um, are things that ought to have been perfectly lawful. Of course, there are people who take that view. And we heard from a number of them during the Leveson inquiry. But this is because they're able to manipulate the language of press freedom to either make out there's something special about the press generally or to persist with the myth that newspapers exist only to protect citizens from government. And quite why anyone still believes that myth is a complete mystery to me. I'm not sure anybody does, but they um, keep repeating it anyway. Sticking with privacy, I want to discuss briefly the Supreme Court hearing on the 30th of November and 1st of December in ZXC and Bloomberg. Um, This is the case that considers whether and to what extent a person who has been charged with an offence can have a reasonable expectation of privacy in relation to information that related to the criminal investigation and its activities. Both the first instance and court of appeal agreed that the publication of the fact of an investigation and details of the investigation of the claimants in this case were uh, a misuse of their private information. And Bloomberg is now appealing that decision. Given your differing views on Cliff Richard, I thought you guys would have um, many thoughts on how you think this case should be ruled. Yes. So, um, well, not not to um, not to repeat everything that we've said previously, um, but I think I think the key question here for the for the courts, to my mind, is to try and um, disentangle what to me is a fairly obvious misunderstanding that has taken place across the courts and become um, uh, embedded in law for reasons I don't fully understand, and the. The confusion concerns the obligations that the police have to a suspect in terms of uh, the Human Rights Act and their privacy under the Human Rights Act because the police are a public authority and uh, the the sort of uh, obligations that newspapers have which are not the same. They are not a public authority. Um, and we should probably just stop recording there because Tom has nothing to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be fascinating to see which way this one goes this is the big a big opportunity for the supreme court to rule on the supposed uh, 
de facto right to pre-charge anonymity for criminal suspects. Um, and obviously, yes, this was an issue that, that arose in the Cliff Richard case, and Paul and I have had our disagreement on it, and, and Paul is determined never to forget that. Um, but from my perspective, I don't think it's terribly helpful to talk about recognizing a right to pre-charge anonymity um, because that suggests that the right would be in some way absolute. Uh, it isn't. If the court, as I think is entirely possible, but I, I, won't, you know, I won't say that it's more likely than that, if the Supreme Court rules that a person may have a reasonable expectation of privacy in respect of um, there being a criminal suspect prior to being charged, uh, that doesn't mean that they or any other claimant in that situation will win their privacy case. It simply means that their case, prima facie, can get off the ground. There still needs to be a proportionality assessment at stage two. If the court considers that there is sufficient public interest, or indeed, as Paul's research that has to show, and if the court considers there is any public interest, um, then it is entirely uh, possible that the claim um, will fail, notwithstanding the recognition that there is a reasonable expectation of privacy. And that is, I think, how it should be. Um, that it is possible to have a reasonable expectation of privacy in respect of that information in those circumstances, but that that reasonable expectation is subject to a proportionality assessment at stage two that can give way to the public interest. And in that way, you can still make it possible to identify suspected offenders at the point at which uh, identification of them might enable other potential complainants to come forward, which of course was the argument in the Richard case. And I, uh, I, I never objected to that argument. I think the other difficulty with uh, ZXC that we, we need to sort of, I suppose, anticipate is ZXC is slightly different to the other cases in this in this line of cases, uh, in that ZXC, unlike I think the, the vast majority of the others, is really a breach of confidence claim. It's to do with a newspaper getting hold of a, a confidential report, a report from one uh, law enforcement body prepared for the eyes of another law enforcement body uh, in in circumstances where it's not clear as far as I can tell there isn't any public interest in the public knowing about the existence of the investigation or the report at that stage so it's not it's not as if the newspaper had discovered evidence of let's say corruption police corruption uh, within the report of a cover up or or any other um, sort of free speech claims that we could easily say oh well that was in the public interest that we knew about that at that stage um, so I th I think the Supreme Court uh, may well say that. Um, the trial judge, um, now I'm going to get confused now in my chronology, but I think they might say the trial judge got it right to say that this was a confidential matter uh, for which pub the public interest just wasn't there to justify the, uh, uh, the breach of confidence. One thing I just want to uh, follow up on is 
something Tom said um, with regard to the, I guess, the hierarchy of criminal potential criminal offences, because this is something that the Court of Appeal mentions specifically. Um, they said that to be suspected of a crime is damaging whatever the nature of the crime. And so they were quite against the idea that you have this hierarchy of certain offences maybe pass a, a public interest threshold. So I just wondered whether you thought that that was a, a, the correct ruling or whether you think this is something the Supreme Court should readjust. I don't think there can be any hard and fast rule on it. Um, the nature of misuse of private information procedure is that the courts have to conduct an intense focus on the particular facts in the case at hand to view them in context alongside whatever public interest there is. So I, I don't think it helps to talk of a, a, a hierarchy of offences as if we could simply plot a scale and, and deal with any case that came along it by, by looking at the uh, at the graph in front of us and saying, well, this is how much public interest there is in this sort of case. All is dependent on the facts. Um, so, you know, wh wh whether it is permissible to publish that information is something that has to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis by the courts. I mean, what, what the Supreme Court could do here, which it won't, but it could, is to intellectualise the role of reputation in the determination of privacy claims. Um, this is another uh, point of dispute between uh, me and Dr. Bennett, uh, in that uh, I accept that, as I must, that uh, the European Court of Human Rights has said that reputation falls under Article 8, but I don't accept that that means that reputation is a facet of uh, privacy. All, all I think the European Court of Human Rights mean is that if you is that defamation as a claim belongs under the umbrella of Article 8. But my frustration is that uh, privacy is used as a way of protecting defamation interests, i.e. reputation, but without the hassle of having to comply with those fiddly little rules that we have in defamation. Well, um, Paul likes to put his fists up and uh, challenge challenge me on that point on a fairly regular basis. And uh, He knows for well what my response is because I've given it to him before and anyone who wants to read it can find our post on the Richard case on form um, from uh, whatever that was a couple of years ago or could listen to the podcast episode where we debate this in detail. Um, I don't see the need for such a rigid doctrinal distinction between uh, claims of privacy and claims of defamation. But in any event, uh, my view is that the interests that are being uh, discussed and protected in these cases are not reputational interests distinct from privacy interests. They are privacy interests. They may have a reputational aspect but they are privacy interests because they are to do with the dignity and autonomy of the individual. So I, 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 I simply don't think the distinction needs to be made in quite such a highly formalised fashion. It's all a bit 19th century. I'm going to stop you both there because otherwise that will take over the rest of the podcast. If listeners want to hear more of this conversation, they can go back and listen to old newscasts and media law podcasts. 
where this is discussed in great detail. Uh, but this is a nice segue then into some of the defamation cases that I want to discuss in today's newscast. Um, the first, just to briefly mention Abramovich's claim against Harper Collins. Uh, this is the Chelsea Football Club owner who has successfully passed the first stage of his libel claim against the journalist Catherine Belton and the publisher Harper Collins for allegations made in Belton's book, Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West. On the 24th of November 2021, Mrs Justice Tipples found that all nine of the meanings of the allegations relating to Abramovich's purchase of Chelsea Football Club on the directions of President Putin and the Kremlin were defamatory. So the case will proceed to trial. Um, next, we have a new issued claim from, uh, well, whether it's been issued yet, yeah, I'm not too sure, but um, Andrew Neal has announced that he will be launching a libel claim against the US businesswoman Jennifer Arcuri over a tweet in which she alleged that Neil was involved in sex offending and a contact of deceased paedophile Jeffrey Epstein. The Twitter spat between the two began with a disagreement over vaccines before a curry upped the ante with a tweet that tagged Neil and read, and I quote, not only is he pay a paid for pharma puppet, but here he is on the pedo elite train. Everyone knows what happened. Everyone knows what happened on that plane. Hashtag it's over. Hashtag TikTok. And a picture of Neil with his arm around a woman and a screen grab from Epstein's address book, which appears to show Neil's name in it. Um, Akuri is a US, she's in the US. And obviously there, the First Amendment makes it quite difficult to bring successful libel claims. The Guardian article on this uh this new claim suggests that being in the US may offer her some protection from the UK's tougher libel laws. This isn't right, is it? Um, depends on the state. Um, there are states in the US uh, that have passed their own internal uh, laws that prohibit the enforcement of uh, libel judgments issued by courts in the United Kingdom in the US. Um, and there are states that have not done that. So uh, it depends exactly where Jennifer Curie is based, whether enforcement could be an issue at some point. But there's nothing to stop in the meantime, uh, Andrew Neil from commencing libel proceedings in the United Kingdom. They can, if successful, be enforced against any assets that uh, Curie has in the UK. Um, or it can just sit there on the books waiting for enforcement if she ever uh, deigns to turn up in London again. Okay, I want to um, move on as well because I've got a couple of things I want to talk about before we finish today. Uh, just to mention the Rohingya refugees claim that has been brought against Facebook for £113 billion pounds or £150 billion US dollars after alleging that Facebook's platforms allowed, and I quote from one of the claims filed in the US, their claims have been filed in both the UK and the US, the dissemination of hateful and dangerous misinformation to continue for years. An estimated 10,000 Rohingya Muslims were killed during the military crackdown in Myanmar in 2017. And so the San Francisco claim accuses Facebook of being, and again, I quote, 
willing to trade the lives of the Rohingya people for a better market penetration in a small country in Southeast Asia. So obviously we will keep an eye on this claim as it proceeds and we will keep you updated. And just finally today, I want to mention um, the US government has been successful in its appeal to extradite WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Lord Chief Justice Lord Burnett and uh, Lord Justice Holroyd found that given the US authorities' subsequent assurances that Assange would not face the strictest prison conditions if he was extradited, the real and oppressive risk of suicide that was fundamental in the first instance decision not to extradite him was no longer relevant. Lawyers defending uh, Assange have said that these assurances are meaningless and vague, the assurances of the US government, that is. Assange has become something of a figurehead for journalistic freedom. Do you think that this extradition is an affront on free press, as people claim? Yes, of course it is. Um, At the end of the day, uh, Assange was passed documents by... Uh, a whistleblower, well, a number of whistleblowers over the years, uh, and published them. This is something journalists, uh, if they have freedom, um, are free to do. Uh, and he is being charged with espionage for doing something that journalists have been doing for years. This is just uh, the US flexing its muscles. But there's, um, there's an important point here, which is that we we can see that despite this, um, Article 10 has not provided Julian Assange with a sufficient degree of protection. It hasn't impelled the English courts to protect his freedom of expression, to protect the public interest in having a figure like Julian Assange um, blowing the whistle on um, government wrongdoing, the, the wrongdoing of, of, of major uh, world governments. Um Clearly, there's a problem in the interpretation of Article 10. And uh, maybe what we ought to do is uh, think about reforming the way that we interpret the Human Rights Act um, in order to give greater protection to freedom of speech. Oh, my goodness, what am I saying? Uh, It sounds like I've just taken a page straight out of the government's consultation document. Except that's, of course, not what they mean, is it? The government has no interest in protecting the free speech of people like Julian Assange. If they did, that's what would be in the consultation document. That would be the proposal. There isn't enough protection for Article 10 because people like Julian Assange keep uh, falling afoul of rulings by our pesky courts and these judges that don't know how to interpret free speech in a way that actually protects important free speech interests. That's not what the government's interested in at all. Government's no more interested in protecting Julian Assange than that is in protecting the uh, rights of people who lie down in front of the Excel Center for 90 minutes. Um, that's not the issue. The government's interested in protecting uh, people like Associated Newspapers Limited, who publish private letters of Meghan Markle uh, in order to make good on their personal animosity towards her. It's appalling. It's a travesty. I'm out of here. Well, I think that's a great way to end today's newscast then. This is going to be the last newscast of the year. Um, So Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to all our listeners and to you, Tom and Paul. To you too, Colette. Thank you very much. Happy Christmas. Yeah, thanks, Colette. And as ever, follow us on social media and we will be back in the new year with more newscasts. Thanks very much.